Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Thomas White, a trauma and critical care surgeon who practices at the Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. He's on the board of directors of the newly formed Chest Wall Injury Society, and he's actually dabbled in podcasts as part of, as part of the society's ribcast. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. White. Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. So we like to start our podcast with getting an introduction about who you are, where you're from, and um, how did you uh, take the path into um, doing trauma and, and participating in the society? Well, sure. Well, I'm, as you mentioned, I'm in Salt Lake City now, but I, I, didn't, I haven't always been here. I started practicing uh, in uh, rural Wyoming after my uh, general surgery training at the University of Utah. I was there for a brief period of time, and then I went to, uh, I traveled east and set up shop in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, also a rural community, but a, a bigger one, and I had a very busy uh, general surgery practice there. Um, I was uh, sort of somewhat roped into the trauma uh, directorship job there. We were a level one, a level two trauma center, and I rapidly developed a passion for trauma care and, and uh, critical care. And about uh, a dozen years ago, I decided that I wanted to um, <clears throat> take take it to the next level. I went back and did a critical care fellowship um, at the advanced age of 47. That's a whole other topic. And uh, survived that and then uh, joined the trauma group at the newly uh, established Intermountain Medical Center, which is the flagship hospital for the Intermountain Healthcare uh, group of hospitals here in Salt Lake City. So we are a level one trauma center. I'm uh, one of the rank and file trauma critical care surgeons, and uh, I do some acute care surgery, but my primary focus is 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 trauma care. So Dr. White, how did the idea of uh, the Chest Wall Injury Society come about? Well, um, about four years ago, uh, I had a, a notion that there were enough surgeons um, who are doing uh, chest wall injury repair on a regular basis. There was a critical mass enough that we could uh, get together and start uh, sh sharing ideas, uh, re research initiatives, uh, that sort of thing. We um, we were operating principally in silos, and I thought it was time maybe to see if there was uh, a way to um, reach some common common ground. We so I. We, with the help of Intermountain Healthcare and some others, we organized the first uh, rib fixation colloquium. That was in Park City in the spring of 2016. That's Park City, Utah. So that was just um, a little over um, two two and a half years ago. Uh, it was a it seemed like a very successful um, um, enterprise. We had about 60 surgeons from multiple countries and throughout the United States there, and we. Uh, promised to to meet and do it again, and we did we did that in 2017. And after that meeting, we um, we f formalized the uh, the the idea or the plan of forming a society. That came to fruition shortly that after that meeting, and um, the society uh, gained ownership or 
became the principal driver for the for the for the ongoing meetings and our last uh, and th- our most recent and third uh, summit meeting was just this last spring um, and that was the uh, first meeting fully under the guise or under the auspice of the uh, chest wall injury, injury society we now have about 140 members from 17 different countries and uh, we're, we're experiencing steady growth and a lot of enthusiasm and uh, our initial idea that there was a group of surgeons out there who who wanted who needed to form a tribe and 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 start interacting uh, formally and informally was uh, uh, came to being. So let's jump right into our dissection of the day. One of the things we like to do is talk a little bit more about an in depth with our guests. And today we're going to talk a little bit about managing chest wall trauma. So walk our listeners a little bit through chest wall trauma. What your thoughts about going into them? What have been the major changes in management over the past few years? Certainly. Well, as as everyone knows or should know that's involved with trauma care, it's one of the most common and morbid conditions that we deal with. Um, and uh, until recently, rib fractures, uh, multiple rib fractures, that's the, the primary um, injury pattern that we see, or the most common injury pattern we see in patients with blunt chest trauma. Um, they've been managed uh, expectantly. And uh, most of the time you get away with that. But there is a subgroup of patients who whose injuries are so severe, their me- the mechanical disruption of their of their uh, bony and muscular uh, rib um, breathing apparatus is so severe that they that they they simply can't support themselves for for uh, without without mechanical support, and now more commonly with with uh, with surgical support. The the history of uh, rib fracture repair is an interesting one. Uh, there was uh, some enthusiasm for it a few decades ago with some success, but then uh, with the advent of and widespread availability of the mechanical ventilator, the uh, the motivation to uh, further de- develop mechanical repairs of the chest wall sort of went away for a while. Um, internal splinting with the mechanical ventilator became the norm, uh, but uh, about... Uh, 15 years ago, um, mid-90s, late-90s, uh, there were reports uh, began to surface in the literature of, 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 of operative fixation of severe flail chest with, with, with positive results. And that led to a development of rib-specific plating systems uh, in, the, um, in, the, uh, in the decade of the 2000s, and those became... Uh, available to most surgeons who wanted to get their hands on them around around 2009-2010, and uh, there's been a, a, an exponential increase in interest and in publications in the literature and and the number of patients who've been treated with operative fixation since that time period. So the modern era of rib fixation is 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 a decade old or a little older, and uh, that's we're we're really st- Still very much in the infancy of the uh, application, the technology, and, the, and most importantly, the science of repair. There are other, uh, certainly other chest wall injuries that are import, uh, sternal fracture, for example, scapular fractures, uh, diaphragm injuries. And those, those are, um, um, the interest in those injuries is also escalating. But pri- the primary 
interest in the last decade or so has been in, in uh, rib fracture repair in, in patients with flail chest mechanics. So, Dr. White, how, talking a little bit more about that, about the uh, manage, surgical management of rib fractures, how do you decide um, who and when to plate? Well, that's the, that's the really challenging uh, question, particularly for those who haven't developed a lot of experience with the technique yet. Finding that ideal patient and making sure that you're applying it to the right patient and you're not performing too much surgery on someone, um, that's, that can be, that can be can be challenging. We don't have, uh, cur- currently, I think it's safe to say that the literature supports its use in the patient with flail chest. Of course, just to review, that's the patient with fr- rib fractures that are uh, individual, fra- rib, rib, a rib fracture pattern that involves multiple fractures uh, over a period of several ribs, creating a, a plate or a mantle of chest wall that moves independently from the rest of the chest wall. And that, that independent motion or that paradoxical motion causes uh, extreme embarrassment of respiratory mechanics in, in patients and, and sig- significant pain, both of those leading ultimately in many patients to respiratory failure and the need for mechanical ventilation, then ultimately tracheostomy, prolonged hospitalization, pneumonia, and some, some element of mortality in that group. So I think it was a recognition that there was a patient group with bad chest trauma who who wasn't being adequately treated or adequately served with our current technology and a, and a drive and a motivation to do something for those patients to to uh, save them from the, the perils of, of 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 the standard therapy and and um, right now that patient group uh, has been studied uh, with a couple well a handful of randomized prospective trials that have been positive. Uh, and so the data there is, and, and the recommendations from the uh, several trauma uh, groups that are, are positive in that regard. I think, I think the, the bigger challenge, which is the question I think you were trying to ask me or were asking me, was what do we do with patients with a lesser degree of injury where the indications aren't and the benefits may not be as apparent? How do we decide whether those patients deserve an operation? And I, 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 it's it's not a terribly gratifying answer that I'm going to give you. It's it's based on a lot of it's based on expert opinion and clinical experience, but there is some data that patients with severe rib fractures, uh, multiple displaced rib fractures, uh, benefit significantly from from fixation, particularly early fixation, and one can significantly reduce their length of stay, pneumonia rates. Um, and uh, ultimately uh, impact their ability to return to work, which is really what, or or whatever they do, which is really think that that it has eluded us, but really needs needs to be studied. And that is how, if you fix somebody with bad rib fractures who's going to live anyway, but you fix them, does that if, if you fix them up front, are you enhancing their ability to get back to their pre-morbid or pre-injury lifestyle? Are you able to avoid narcotics and narcotic addiction? Are you able to um, improve their and lower their risk of chronic pain syndromes? Those are the kinds of questions that we really need answers to. And some of those studies are now are are ongoing. We can talk about uh, at least one of those um, studies specifically if you'd like. 
Yeah, I guess what I'm most interested in is that there seems to be kind of two school thought schools of thought, specifically when it comes to early rib plating, um, and especially like in young patients, if if that has a benefit of plating early. I know some people believe very strongly that you should plate early, and others believe that you should not. So I was just kind of wondering what your practice was, what what where we stand currently with the literature, yeah. um, and what your experience has been with that. Well, the best paper in the literature that tries to answer that question was published in the Journal of Trauma, and it's from 2015. It was a plenary paper at the AAST. It's a multi-institutional look at at uh, timing of fixation. Our, our institution was evolved along with three others, and we looked at approximately 600 patients and looked at the timing of repair and, uh, and c- compared that to uh, things like um, length of stay, ICU length of stay, ventilator days, uh, th- those sorts of things. And it appeared that patients who got earlier repair um, did better. It didn't appear that way. In fact, statistically, they did better. It, it, the rationale or the idea here is that if you're fixing them early before they, quote, fail, unquote, then um, you're, you're lowering their risk or eliminating their need for these um, um, for these the complications that ensue that we talked about a few moments ago. So the, so the one school of thought, as you referred to, is fix early, avoid complications, and get patients out of the hospital quicker and, and safer. The, the other school of thought is, well, because we're not, um, we're not entirely um, – our ability to predict, predict who's going to need this operation or do well or do poorly without it, I guess, is the best way to say that. Uh, because our prediction tools in that regard are imperfect, then we should wait and let patients fail or start to fail and then offer repair. And I think that this study, along with some of the other data that's available, I think shows a strong signal that, that we you should use your best predictive powers and fix those patients with severe injury and, uh, and eliminate some of the complications. So right now, in our institution and many others, early fixation is the order of the day. And when I say early, I mean... Uh, 24 to 48 hours is sort of what we would consider to be early. It's how we defined it in the study as well, uh, retrospectively. Uh, we occasionally will fix patients uh, inside of 24 hours. It's the rare patient, but it's a patient with obvious uh, anatomic derangement who's going to fail, and uh, and their all of their other traumatic injuries are are uh, evident and um, addressed and the patient is not uh, no longer needing active resuscitation that there is a rare patient like that who uh, deserves to go to the operating room I think uh, 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 quickly either the night of injury or the perhaps the next morning we do a lot of our surgeries the day after their injury we let the dust settle a bit we make sure that they they don't have ongoing needs and they don't have any uh, significant contraindications to uh, surgical fixation. Um, but but that's an evolution. When we first started doing this, we waited to see how patients would do because we weren't confident we could predict who would do poorly. And with time, I think we got better at, at that prediction. And so our time to surgery from injury to OR uh, progressively declined. And now it's in that 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 24 to 48 hour window is our is our average time for fixation. I think that's true in most centers that do a fair number of uh, repairs. So another kind of follow up question I had, um, you know, our at our institution, I think we're participating in one of your replating trials and um, we get a lot of elderly patients 
and we, you know, keep them in the step down unit or the ICU for close care um, and watch their lung expansion. Um, but I guess on the flip side of talking about, you know, younger patients, do you have exclusion criteria for older patients or is it all just um, based on, you know, what their comorbidities are and um, if you feel like they're going to uh, have success after rib plating? That's, that's an excellent question. Do we exclude patients from consideration if they have certain comorbidities or certain age restrictions and that sort of thing. And I think the bottom line really is no, in, as a short answer. Um, we, it's, this is not only true in rib fixation surgery, but it's true in many uh, areas of trauma care. And it's the patients who have, or at the extremes of age, particularly the elderly extreme of age, and those who um, have marginal reserve and have comorbidities, those patients tolerate complications uh, poorly or not at all, and um, they, in, on, in although it's it's there's some reluctance or early at least early on we had some reluctance taking an 85 year old to the operating room to fix their brittle ribs. What we found was that they tolerated that procedure very well with low risks and low morbidity, and they tended to do well. And but if they if they were if they're left alone to uh, to develop atelectasis and then pneumonia and then intubation. And then um, the, most of the time those patients did very poorly and many of them didn't survive. So that's not well-defined yet in the literature, but, but I think most of, again, most of us who are doing this on a fairly regular basis are not, do not shy away from the, the frail patient. Now, certainly if someone's at the end of life or they have metastatic cancer or they're the, they or their family are not motivated to, to weather the storm, so to speak, of, of recovering from a, their traumatic injury, then then those patients should not be fixed. But if it's if you're going to give them a chance, you want to give them their best chance of of recovery. I think fixate early early uh, and aggressive fixation is probably uh, very is is prudent in the in the frail patient. Um, we found bone density to be a, a concern. The the ribs are very ribs are very fragile um, compared to other long bones, and uh, there are mechanical issues that are important to take into account when you're fixing the ribs of the elderly or the osteoporotic. But in general, those patients, in my experience, don't stress their repairs very much. And so uh, the fixation tends to hold uh, if you're careful and do it right. And uh, on, on balance, they're, they're, they do okay with repair. Dr. White, I wanted to ask you some some. Probably a very obvious question that I'm sure you get asked a lot in all these um, organization meetings. How do you justify the cost of replating? Um, a lot of trauma centers, you know, deal with uh, non uninsured people. And yeah, um, when you talk to that school of surgeons that do not believe in replating um, or added benefits of replating, I should say, um, they talk about the costs a lot. Um, I wanted to get your opinion on, like, how do you justify um, the cost of this uh, this procedure? Well, yes, yes, they do. It's a very popular uh, and common um, um, comment about rib fracture repair. I think some of it's justified. I think some of it is unjustified. The problem with with it is we don't have good uh, we don't have a good way to measure true costs, particularly in the non-operative setting. So let's say you leave someone unrepaired and they develop 
respiratory failure that's short-lived, but they're on the ventilator for a couple of days and they spend those days in the ICU and they might develop a pneumonia or a clapsy or a blood clot and they eventually get well and they go to rehab and they may or may not have had to go to rehab if they've been repaired. Um, and that patient ends up costing whoever, the hospital or third party payer or uh, something that those, those, that costly recovery uh, costs someone something, but how do you directly identify those costs and compare them with the surgical costs? That's, that's a real challenge. And I've not seen anybody do that very effectively yet. Uh, but that's, that's the issue that we're talking about. I think if, if you're going to make a case to someone uh, for doing rib repair to, to justify the upfront cost, you have to know sort of what down, downstream cost you're avoiding uh, by by pre preventing infections and prolonged hospitalizations. So that, again, not a terribly gratifying answer. We don't have a lot of data on that yet, but, but I think all of those who have done this have seen that, uh, uh, seen, seen those patients who do poorly uh, and how much, you know, and, and, and have an appreciation for how expensive that, that course of action is. The one thing that we don't uh, know uh, the other rationale I think for it's reasonable again without a lot of data it, for those who are opponents is 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 what what are these patients what do they look like and what are they doing six to twelve months postoperatively? What we do know from some studies by Lander Casper and others is that patients with flail chest who don't get surgery and this data comes from the 90s and, and 2000s before rib fracture repair was common. Um, the patients who have rib uh, uh, flail chest. Uh, only a minority of those patients really ever get back to their full function. And a, a small minority, actually, less than 40% of those patients achieve normalcy again. And many of them have chronic pain issues and chest wall deformity and infirmities that are, are hard to characterize. And how, so, how do you, how do you, how do you? What's the cost of that? Um, we don't, we don't know. We don't have good, um, good data on that. But that's. It, it seems to me, in the absence of good data, that 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 if we have a, we have a technology that's um, well tolerated and 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 appears to be very effective in l reducing these complications and these long-term um, conditions I just referred to, um, that that perhaps we ought to give the patient the benefit of the doubt and and give them an opportunity. Now, that's not very scientific. We obviously should be studying these patients in a randomized uh, format, but, but those, those trials are extremely hard to, um, to pull off and to accomplish. And um, so in the, in the absence of that data or until that data is available, I think, I think one can justify the expensive surgical costs by um, pointing out that you're eliminating or reducing significantly the very expensive um, downstream costs from patients with bad rib fractures who don't get repaired. And we have historical data on that. Okay, let's transition now to our tips and tricks segment where we ask our experts to give us some helpful hints to get us out of sticky situations. And uh, based on what we were just talking about, let's talk about the patient with flail chest. Can you give our listening audience a, a few tips and tricks about how do you deal with that particular patient? When do you decide to manage non-operatively? When do you bring in an epidural? When do you intubate? When do you do rib plating? What is your kind of very quick algorithm in terms of dealing with this uh, this patient population? 
Well, that's a very well-informed question. It's uh, and it's complex. We could spend hours talking about all of those things. But in a nutshell, I think the first thing to do is identify these patients when they arrive, because that's your best opportunity to get to get imaging, adequate imaging, and to um, go ahead and uh, obtain 3D reconstructions of their CAT scan, uh, which I think are, are very helpful. I'm not going to say that it's an imperative, but, but we, we're, we're reluctant to take anyone to the operating room without an opportunity to look at the 3D reformatting of their ribs. It really helps with operative planning. It gives you an opportunity to, 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 um, to visualize the mechanical disruption and, and how, uh, how you're going to repair that and which fractures you're going to seek out to repair and it also helps very much in educating the family and the patient um, about the, the need or the, the uh, rationale for, for an operation of their ribs, uh, which you can't, I really don't think can be overstated. Uh, you, need, you need their buy-in and uh, the, uh, uh, good chest imaging with 3D reconstructions helps you in that regard. So that's the most important thing. Secondly, you got to make sure the patient doesn't have another reason or have, have a reason not to be in the operating room for that two or three hour repair? Uh, are they unstable from hemodynamics? Do they have a spleen injury that's bleeding? Do they have a TBI that really deserves to be observed and treated medically and optimally in a non-prone or uh, non-supine position for a while? I mean, these are the kinds of questions you need to ask yourself. The stable, is the spine stable? Do they have an unstable spine or pelvis fracture that needs to be addressed first? So those, those kinds of conditions. And then um, you need, uh, uh, if, if they have flail chest, in, my, in, our, in our algorithm, they are candidates for rib repair. It doesn't mean every one of them gets fixed. Once in a while, you'll meet a patient with flail chest anatomically or radiographically who clinically is doing very well. They, their ribs are not badly displaced. So you're not, you're not terribly concerned about implosion or collapse uh, of the chest wall, which which can occur, and so you, you might choose to, to treat that patient non-operatively, and that's not not rare. Uh, so you need to, you know, obviously you need to look at the patient and see if they're uh, in respiratory distress. Uh, you might use an objective measure, a spirometry or some sort of PFT testing to see how they're doing, and then and obviously you want to optimize their pain control before you assess them or use or use residual pain or persistent pain as a criteria for operating. So that's a combination of opioids and, and non-steroidals and in select patients, epidural catheters or paravertebral blocks or transdermal um, um, lidocaine, those sorts of uh, adjuncts are now commonly used. One thing rib fracture repair has done for, for us and for many is it's improved the way we treat, we take care of all patients with chest wall injury you know, we, 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 when we started this a decade ago, I don't remember doing anything except giving patients a, a bucket load of opioids and an occasional epidural. And now everybody gets these, these, uh, uh, these adjuncts and, and the multimodality approach. And I think, I think, um, I think they, whether they get surgery or they don't get surgery, they get, they get better care now for their rib fractures. So I think that's a, a side benefit of, of, of you know aggressively uh, looking at, at rib fracture repairs that the patients who don't get repaired and there are many uh, they'll they'll get better therapy um, the, there's a there's a feeling out there that once you start plating ribs that you, you're going to fix everybody and we've looked carefully at that and and the last time we looked uh, in the 
2014-2016 time period, we were repairing only 11 patients. I'm sorry, 11% of patients who admitted to our service with rib fractures. So it's, it's one out of 10 patients on the trauma service who get an operation. It's not everyone. But I think everybody benefits from that. So uh, operative considerations, you really need to think carefully about how you're going to position the patient. Oftentimes, it's a lateral decubitus position. That's sort of the workhorse default positioning. But sometimes it's prone and sometimes it's supine. It depends on, on, on wh where the where, depends entirely on the fracture pattern. We used to make big thoracotomy and posterior lateral thoracotomy incisions on all these patients and expose them widely. And that, that's, that evolution towards um, a more precision incision placement and minimizing exposure and, uh, and uh, sparing muscle has been a very gratifying part of this, of this journey. We now uh, seek to make incisions as small as possible, uh, not compromising exposure, of course, but making them small enough that, that they heal. Uh, uh, they're cosmetically less conspicuous and they, there's fewer complications, that sort of thing. We don't divide muscle routinely. Latismus and the serratus can be moved out of the way or split to expose the underlying ribs. Uh, we frequently go under the scapula now through the, tri the triangle of auscultation. And with the modern plating systems, all of them have right angle, low, low profile instrument, instruments that allow you to place, uh, place these plates high and anterior and posterior uh, from a distance without having to uh, expose directly over the top of them for right angle or for direct orientation. So. This, the systems have uh, the the the, um, the companies are are um, partnering with surgeons to make make this procedure uh, less invasive as we move forward. So uh, um, so operative considerations: uh, Are you going to do one side or both sides? Are you going to fix every rib? Uh, obviously, uh, we there are occasions when we do both sides. Usually, I stage my bilateral repairs, I pick the worst side first and do the next one the next day. Or, but occasionally we'll do one side and flip the patient and do the other. Um, we, we don't fix every rib fracture. Fractures that are non-displaced, and uh, particularly if they're of ribs 1 or 2 or 10, 11, 12, we gen generally leave those alone. They, have very they contribute very little to respiratory mechanics. Uh, they're, not, they're not as painful. And uh, so we focus on ribs 3 through 9. Um, we don't repair fractures that are close to the spine. How close is too close has has changed. Uh, but if we, we, they, we need you need a land you need a sufficient zone of rib next to the spine to land your hardware, and at a minimum that's about three or four centimeters. So uh, some of those uh, fracture patterns right along the uh, spinous process or uh, close to the transverse process, those fractures are uh, some that we. Uh, Oftentimes we'll we'll ignore um, the, um, the cartilage cartilage fractures, parasternal uh, fractures. Those are that's an area of controversy. But more and more uh, often now we are uh, we are we are plating to or over cartilage to try to stabilize the anterior chest wall. We frequently see patients with uh, sternal flail uh, referred to us now, or we see them primarily from seatbelt from uh, steering wheel impacts from CPR, those are the two most common mechanisms. And we now have techniques and plating systems that allow us to bridge or stabilize those flail segments with, with a high degree of uh, success. Um, 
So we, uh, you plate what you can get to. Uh, overlapping or dis highly displaced ribs need to be reduced and plated. And, um, and then the drains, uh, we, we, we typically drain the, the thoracics, the, the thorax, um, the, the, the dreaded complication of the retained hemothorax, which then requires um, a VATS or a, a thoracotomy later is, is looms large. And so we, we do whatever we can in the operating room to make sure that the pleural space is addressed. We either put the thoroscope in or we lavage the space with warm saline using, using a chest tube. And we want to ensure that, uh, that, that the hemothorax is completely evacuated. The skin flaps and submuscular flaps, we don't typically drain those. We used to, but we don't anymore. And uh, skin closure techniques are pretty, pretty normal. These patients are, we no longer restrict them. Um, that's not true of everyone. That's, I'm, t I'm giving you my, my technical uh, bias. Uh, there are other institutions that do some of these things a little bit different. But in general, this is, this is, the, this is the course of action. We uh, Early mobilization, early out of bed, um, aggressive pulmonary toilet, uh, some, some early physical therapy to maintain arm and shoulder mobility and to prevent scapular uh, adhesion to the chest wall. Those things are thought to be uh, very important. Uh, some of them are being actively studied now. But what's particularly gratifying for these patients, particularly the flail chest patients, is watching their mechanics immediately improve uh, their flail, their paradox goes away an hour later in the ICU. They're generally, their pain is much easier to control, and oftentimes they're ready for extubation then or the next day, and, um, and they tend to mobilize quickly, and many of them uh, proceed rapidly to rehab their other injuries. Um, that's another rationale for fixing patients with bad chest trauma in, in conjunction with lower extremity or pelvic trauma is it's easier for them to to crutch, uh, to weight bear with crutches uh, in the subsequent weeks of recovery if their chest wall has been stabilized and repaired. So um, if you look, if you look uh, aggressively, you can find lots of reasons to fix people. And, you know, it's interesting, but we've, we've, it's true that ribs have healed on their own for millennia or longer, but uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing to do. Um, there's lots of things in medicine that we've, that we've we have left unattended, but we've learned over the years that, that there it's better to 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 fix those. We fix we fix the face, we fix the the we fix long bones, we fix you know a host of other fractures, um, arguably that have that aren't necessarily life or limb threatening, but we do it to enhance recovery and give the patient a better result. And and I think it's time to start thinking about ribs in the same in the same light. But of course, I'm, I'm, I'm heavily biased. I've been doing this now and talking about it and teaching about it and studying it for a decade. And so uh, you'll have to excuse uh, my obvious, uh, my obvious bias. bias. I've, I've drunk the Kool-Aid. Let's just say it that way. <laughs> well, thank you very much for that overview. That was very thorough and very helpful for our listeners. Um, so our final segment here is the final five. It's where we ask you some questions that uh, for our audience to get to know you a little more personally. So our first question is, um, is there someone outside of medicine who's been influential in your life and your career? Well, I think I, I, I think I'll go to my father. Um, he left me too soon, but he um, he was a uh, <clears throat> he was a very skilled uh, pilot who was 
valued education. He was intellectually curious. He was profoundly supportive of me and my uh, desire to be a physician. And um, I, I can't think of a, anybody who had more influence on me than my father. Do you have a uh, Do you have a favorite movie? And if so, what is it and why? I do have a favorite movie, and it's kind of silly, but I love I love uh, 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 the Lawrence of Arabia movie. It's just uh, one of those epic um, cinematic experiences that every time I watch it, I find something new. I just I just find the, uh, uh, T. E. Lawrence's uh, character to be so compelling. Um, against all odds, he he did great things, um, and I just um, I would have to say that movie, if I'm stuck on a desert island with only one movie to watch, that's the one I'd bring. Our next question is, during residency, what was your uh, guilty pleasure snack? I love, I love beef, and I, cheeseburgers would, a cheeseburger would, would oftentimes uh, hit the spot when I was, it was late at night or I was, after a long weekend of call, I would have to say a cheeseburger. How's that? Number four, if you were to compete in the Olympics, what event would you want to do? I'd say uh, men's downhill skiing, a skiing venue, uh, skiing in, uh, in the Winter Olympics. And right now, if we were to grab your white coat, what would we find in or on it? <laughs> That's a great question. You'd find a name medallion that's a dear friend of mine gave me many years ago, and it's 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 got a southwestern theme to it with a piece of turquoise on it and my name uh, engraved on it. I, I, I value that nameplate because of, of the friendship that that uh, signifies. Uh, my name would, uh, you'd find uh, a blue Sharpie uh, pen. That's the only kind of pen I ever write with. You'd find one of those in the pocket and you might find some scattered change. Well, Dr. White, thank you for sharing and answering all those questions. And thank you for joining us this afternoon. Uh, we appreciate all your input on this uh, topic of replating and chest wall injury. And uh, yeah, thank you once again. Well, you're, you're very welcome. I, I, I admire what you guys do. Until next time, dominate the day. 